Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors and years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. on Talk Design today is Tanya Shively. Tanya is from Scottsdale, Arizona and has an amazing company called Sishu Design. Now she's an interior designer. She has three books behind her that she has authored amazingly and I reckon she's better written up in other magazines than even she's written in her own books. She's probably got about another three books at least just in magazine editorial that she has been featured in very accomplished interior designer and she's going to spill some secrets of the industry to us i'm sure tanya welcome to the show it's so wonderful to have you here it's a pleasure thanks for having me adrian look i'm really looking forward to this it's uh, really cool i want to go back to just one of those general questions that you everybody starts with why 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 interior design what happened? 
did you have a terrible bedroom as a kid and it left you with trauma and you had to fix it or something like that? What was what what brought it out? What made interior design become the thing? Because you're an uber creative person. Uh, why interiors? Well, it's so funny you say that about my bedroom because <laughs> yes, as a young kid, I was probably eight or nine. One of my favorite things to do was to rearrange my bedroom. Like I'm literally moving the furniture, pushing it around myself. So I, I would rearrange my bedroom all the time. And then when I was about 12, I asked for redecorating my bedroom as a birthday present. So I got to decorate it because it's kind of funny now. Before it had been sort of a mod 60s vibe with like lime green and flowers painted on the door. And oh, stuff. wow. This and was this was pre Pre you redecorating, yeah. it was really groovy. Okay. That, that it was groovy. Yeah. And when I was 12, I didn't like groovy. Oh. <laughs> were your parents groovy people? Was that their thing? You know, were they like swinging 60s or something and they were like well, had it going what on? What happened actually is that we moved into what had been my grandparents' house. And I think I'm pretty sure that had been my aunt's bedroom. Oh, and so right. she painted it groovy and so, you know i was horse. 12 in the 80s <laughs> well you know i mean she's a product of her times she grew mm -hmm. up in the 60s i grew up in the 80s and so what i went to was this laura ashley ruffles oh, wow. and pink flowers not my thing anymore You've moved at on. all but that's what i did then it's fascinating <laughs> eh? like it's kind of cool in so many ways as well, because you experienced one, first of all, this, this thing that was of another time mm. and, but it was still styled. It was still deliberate. And then right. you moved to another lot of style that was still styled and very deliberate, you know, mm -hmm. so it wasn't like you were just drifting past with whatever there was, you know, you know, often we go to homes and, We'll look around the house and and there is no um stamps of style there's no coordination you know even just the way they put things down are just in piles of there's no tidiness i don't even know what the word is or the way to describe it there's it's kind of no care in the environment they don't they don't see it and yet you obviously saw it then and then progressed through your laura ashley phase you know that that's right. that's got to come back two or three times in your lifetime, and yes. <laughs> well, not personally, maybe. No, let's give let's give it space. <laughs> <laughs> it may do, and then and then that actually set the sort of the the goal of what was going to happen or the way it was going to happen. Once you've redecorated Laura Ashley style, what happened next? Like. Did your parents love it so much they changed the whole house to it or anything like that? No, but when I got tired of redecorating my bedroom, then I moved on to the living room and just rearranging furniture. Yeah. I tried every possible layout for furniture in the living room. So between the bedroom and the living room, I learned space planning oh. by doing like uh, I know this works, this does that, you know, this makes this room feel bigger. This makes the room feel smaller. 
all of that kind of stuff. And I always loved art. I oh, I took art classes every single year in school uh, and uh -huh. I loved to draw. And yep. when I got into high school, I actually took an interior design class. Hard oh, really? to believe that they offered interior design in high school, but they did. <laughs> and that was what 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 kind of year was that that they offered interior design in high school? It was an elective, and I think I took it as a junior or a senior. I don't remember. And that's where I was like, oh, that's what this is wow. that I love to do. And yeah. that's a way to be creative and make a living. And it put a label so, on it for you. It actually, it, it wrapped a discipline around it. But it's yeah. something you were already doing. That's it. Right. I, I have yet to come across, you're the first, anybody who, um, you know, studied their thing at, um, at high school. I certainly have come across a couple of people who did technical drawing as mm -hmm. a discipline at high school. Um, yeah. And pre-computer, you know, pre-computer technical right. drawing. Uh, and wood shop, obviously, yeah. and metal shop and, you know, mechanic shop. Um, but I thought you girls were just taught to sew and yeah. bake, you know, that Stepford wife stuff. I know. Well, and I actually never took any of that home yeah. sewing, baking none of those classes. I am, I am not that person, but yeah, miraculously they had a drafting class and they had an interior design class. And so that, that, like you said, it put a label on it and then I knew. And so I went straight from there into going to um, college and studying interior design. I knew, you know, all along, okay, was, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, it was, was just the path. So interesting thing. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm going to segue to your your um, sort of philosophy in design, and I want to do that in two ways. I want to I want to talk to you about first of all the name of your company, and because that's got a little history there that I love, and I think that it's really beautiful the way it's borrowed and what it stands for. Um, and then I want to talk around your well-designed philosophy and really kind of open that up to why it's why it's the way to approach things and what it does for your clients so let's start with the name of the company and where you borrowed it from and how that serves your values well when i was starting my company and i was looking for inspiration for a name i was going through old design textbooks and I came across the name of a 15th century Japanese artist, To Seshu. And what it about him was that he was well known for his passion and his creativity and his innovative style. And the name just caught me and then that description caught me as well because that's what I aspire to always embody in my design and my career. And you know, since it was 15th century, I figured he wasn't using the name. <laughs> oh, I Googled a, it and nobody else comes up. Nobody else comes so. up. It's a, it's a really, uh, I love the story of it because he was an artist as well. And you're an artist. You know, your, mm -hmm. your thinking is from an artistic background when it comes to your love of design. And like you said, when you were young, you were, a, you know, an artist and 
that's uh, always affected by art. And then you take that and you go, who's somebody that is a, uh, I'm going to say a dead mentor, um, but who had a set of values. You know, they always say, they always say, make sure your heroes are dead because then they can't screw up and, you know, they can't end up in jail or in court or on TV for the wrong thing uh, because they're dead, they're gone. Um, right. And I go, it's 15th century. That's what you said, a hey, 15th century. Right. It's a pretty safe bet, isn't it? That they're not going to yeah. end up on TV somewhere. Yeah. For doing yeah. something wrong, for embezzling or a Ponzi scheme or something. So, so then no, you take but he that. He has art in the Smithsonian. So that's kind of nice. There's the thing. That's, <laughs> that, but that is, isn't it? That's the thing. It's like, it's got so much history and so many layers of history and it's revered. And then to take that on, it's pretty big shoes to fill, really. You know, to take that on. <laughs> yeah. I'll just borrow yeah, that. Have to yeah. get into the Smithsonian. Oh, I was about to say, yeah, you've got to get into the gallery. <laughs> gold, gold, write that up. Write that right. up in the Smithsonian. Bucket um, list. Yeah, exactly. Bucket list. At least you can go back to DC anytime and tax deduct it by going and having a look. Yeah, just mm -hmm. going to see my namesake. Um, right. Was he? He was obviously based in Japan. How did he end up with a with something in the Smithsonian? Any idea? That's a good question. I don't know. Just I guess because you know of his fame, yeah. even during his lifetime, and like I said, his innovative style. When you see Japanese watercolors uh -huh. now, uh -huh. a lot of that stems from him. Oh, really? It's very iconic. And that's probably how he ended up in the Smithsonian. If you think of Japanese art, yeah. it probably was based on how he started. So going back, playing around on this idea, with Japanese art, the very famous Frank Lloyd Wright, of course, was a Japanese art collector. And mm -hmm. he used to supplement his income when architectural times were hard. And I mean, he must have gone through a few cycles. He used to supplement his income by selling off Japanese art pieces. Mm. So mm -hmm. I wonder if he ever had any of um of of that sort of ilk or you know quality or when I say quality right. influence would probably be the right. better. Yeah. So I, I mean, he would have been like a Monet of of or an impressionist of his time in Japan, right. but we're talking centuries before, right? Wow. That's very cool. That's very cool. Um, I like that. So let's go from there to there's a there's kind of a piece with art as well. Because even though you've decided interior design, as being somebody who's attached to artwork, um, how's that influenced the interior design side of things? I mean, I, I'd keep drawing houses that have no walls. You know, they're just all glass. Uh, too bad if you're an art collector. Uh, you know what I mean? Like there's so many, so much our ability to use glass has grown so hugely um, and the cost of glass compared in the last even 30 years has come down so much that glass is actually pretty available and we do, we use lots of, glass because we're trying to connect people with the environment uh which does limit the amount of wall space that exists 
And if you're doing anything special with walls, then what do you do with art? Tell me, tell, let's just play with that. <laughs> well, uh, it's funny that you bring that up because that's a challenge that I have working with my clients. Um, we have such amazing weather and such amazing views. Many of the houses that I work on have a lot of glass and a lot of yeah. windows, not many walls for art. <laughs> and, and also you've so got beautiful, you've got beautiful desert light as well. Um, mm -hmm. especially around, you know, Scottsdale and stuff, you've got the desert light. And I imagine that a fair few of your customers are art collectors or they... Yeah, yeah, exactly. One project that I worked on, these clients were probably the most serious art collectors and they literally came in with their catalog of the art that they owned that they wanted to put into the house. And we started with that. We started with that from a color sense, and we also had to make sure we had walls. So we were collaborating so, with the architect to make sure we had walls that were large enough because they have large pieces of mm -hmm, art. Mm -hmm. I've, got yeah. a, I've got a job I'm doing at the moment, and uh, this couple, fabulous couple, they said, oh, we've got this um, picture. You do, they've got a lot of art. And they said, mm -hmm. you don't have to use it if you don't want to and I'm like oh okay what is it and it's a nude and it's um it's two women uh kind of not lying together one's above the other and the other one's down below a little and there's a, a bunch of tarot cards falling between them and I can't mm. remember the artist's name however she's Spanish and it's um it, it's a an amazing piece of art but it's also nearly as tall as me yeah. so it's huge and um, we don't have a lot of spaces. And uh, anyway, and I said to them, you know, and they have some other beautiful pieces of art as well, but there's this one particular piece. They said, we kind of feel like we should use it because it's worth a, a you know, a shit ton of money. It's it's an expensive piece of art. And I'm like, okay. And then they told me the story of how they were in Spain and they were traveling and they went to this gallery and they met the artist and kind of got carried away and said, well, which one should we buy? And they ended up buying this nude. And I said, well, look, I, look, I think there's an amazing spot. I was being a smart ass. Uh, there's an amazing spot, like, at, you know, where your, your bed doesn't look directly out at the view. It looks sideways out at the view because the way the place is oriented. Or maybe I'll just put it at the other end of the bed. And his wife was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not competing <laughs> with that. Right. Like, <laughs> no comparisons, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we had a good old laugh at that. And then I said, look, um, I've I've got this thought. I've got a spot for it. And he is one of these guys who he plays his cards really close to his chest, but he's he's kind of like naughty, you know. He doesn't make a big noise or anything, but he's constantly just sort of got a, a crinkly smile. And um, and she does the, you know, typical, I'll, I'll roll my eyes at him, but she encourages it like crazy because it's part of how their relationship's built. And mm -hmm. uh, so I said, yeah, look, I'm going to put it in the dining room. And they only want four, ta four, four seats around this particular dining room table. And uh, their backs will always be to the art but they'll be able to have the joy of having their guests having to look at the, this piece of art, <laughs> which is interestingly is so big that, 
you know, part of it will be obscured by them yeah. sitting in front of it. But that yeah. will make it all the more. And then they get to watch the, those people. But when people enter that room, they will not realise that that piece of art is, be, is behind them. It'll be behind them as they go in. It's not until mm-hmm. they turn round. And then you can view it from quite a few other places in there anyway. So it's going to be a bit of fun. It doesn't quite finished yet. But I'm yeah. like, I am like, I love the, um, the play of it. And when I said I was going to do it, she rolled her eyes. He smiled. Um, and I went, so we're doing it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're doing it. <laughs> It'd be great fun. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, it, it's fun to, you know, going going on to like places being with joy and with um, wellness and, you know, your, your well-designed philosophy. And this is about bringing joy and ease and stuff in there. And I know that well is a, an acronym. So I'm mm-hmm. going to get you to explain the acronym. I have this real focus on how do we bring joy into the space and joy, bringing joy into the space for the occupants certainly brings them a healthier life. And when it brings them a healthier life, they live a better, you know, uh, personal life. And then that, then they, that transfers into their family, into their community, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you could always take the opposite thing and go, well, you know, somebody does something terrible and they go, well, look at how they grew up. Um, the privilege of being able to grow up in something that's well-designed and has this, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be over the top, but ease in it. I think is really mm-hmm. important. And then, you know, we've got the privilege of great materiality and things like that and texture and lighting and da 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 da. So tell me about yeah. your well designed philosophy and uh how it works and the thinking behind it and what it how it benefits your client, like what, what happens for your client because they live in something that you've designed uh, with this philosophy versus somewhere else they could live? Well, so what we do with our well-designed philosophy is that just guides our approach to the things that we present, recommend as solutions for the project. Um, What it stands for is the W is we're looking to design spaces that enhance your wellness and well-being. Um, Also, we want spaces that are eco-conscious and sustainable. So we're bringing that aspect in as well. And of course, we always want spaces that are livable and luxurious. Mm -hmm. So what that means, you know, we want materials that are durable, that are appropriate for the people who live there. You know, for instance, if we've got little kids, we need things to be kid-friendly and easily cleanable and, um, pet friendly, those kinds of materials that we're looking at. Um, so that needs to be the livable aspect of it, but also still luxurious. And a lot of features that we bring into the home bring in that level of luxury and convenience. And it might be things like lighting control systems. Uh-huh. It might be things like motorized draperies and shades that you can bring up and down at the touch of a button or even have them programmed here with you know these strong desert 
light and the strong sun in the late afternoon, for instance, you might want your drapes or your shades to automatically close or come down to a certain point to yeah. keep that sun from coming in and heating up the house in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all kinds of convenience features, but they're also addressing an eco-friendly and environmentally responsible aspect of the design. We're looking for materials that are sustainable, that are recycled or reclaimed. Um, we use yeah, a lot of things like reclaimed wood. Uh-huh. Um, we're moving away from using as many natural stones for countertops and actually moving into man-made quartz that are more eco-friendly. Um, and things like ice stone, which is sort of a terrazzo that's made with bits of glass. So it has an interesting, unique sparkle to it. Um, and it's recycled glass, mm-hmm. a lot of fun materials and, and trying to make something that's a little bit more unique in the, yeah. in the look and the aesthetic that we're creating while also being more sustainable and, and eco-friendly. And then, you know, back to the wellness and well-being, those large windows create one really wonderful benefit in that it's connecting us with nature. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have, you have those great views you have a lot of daylight, natural light coming in, and just being surrounded by a feeling of being in nature. Um, and a lot of times, even we're using huge sliding glass doors that will pocket completely yes. away, completely erase that indoor outdoor. You know, eight months out of the year, our weather here is amazing. So, you know, we're building second living rooms, basically, and second kitchens out on your patio. Yeah. And then just erasing that indoor-outdoor with those pocketing doors. It's actually something that we do a lot of as well. We we don't often pocket them funnily enough, but we slide them over the exterior of the house. Uh, Mm -hmm. The reason we don't pocket them so much is because we've got a more tropical climate where I live here. It's like subtropic. So, Florida would be a better description of it. But with that, we have um, things like mud wasps and we Mm. have, um, you know, obviously snakes. It's Australia, spiders, things like that. Um, We we have a a level of, for a country that doesn't have a lot of water, which Australia doesn't, we have a, a level of subtropical lushness that brings lots of like critters. Mm-hmm. And where we would, we originally started pocket sliding these doors. We're like, we've got to, somebody's got to be able to clean the mud wasp nests from the inside. And yeah. unless you're a mud wasp, it's pretty hard to get in there. So we <laughs> went from building them that way. And then um, they still had a, an interlink, you know, at the end so that they would seal, but building them mm-hmm. that way. And then having removable panels on the outside of the house, so we could take them off, close the doors up, and actually clean, you know, get in and clean out the hole. But this is suddenly, a, you know, a thousand dollar operation. It's not necessarily something somebody can just do on their own. Uh, right. To just sliding them over the exterior of the house, and quite often, again, this thing you were saying about mm. large pieces of glass, we will quite often actually. Um, there'll be a piece of wall and then we might run a window beside it that's for breezing. So we'd mm-hmm. use a, a louver system for the, that breezing. And so we will have that. So if the doors are all open, they're just looking into 
three stacks of glass or two stacks of glass, whatever it is. And if the doors are all closed, we've still got a breezing system for the external. You, with yours being open for, say, eight months of the year, that changes your reliance on, say, air conditioning and stuff like that as well, I imagine. Yeah. You know, during our winter, spring months, you don't need air conditioning and you really don't need heat very yeah. much. It's pretty, pretty, so it's, you can light the fire for heat if you want. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And then, you know, in the summer, yes, we have these large expanses of glass, but what we typically end up having is deep overhangs mm -hmm. so that the sun can't really come in to the house, close it all up, air conditioning, keeping the direct sun out and then siding the house properly so that, you know, those Southern exposures don't have the large glass as much as possible you know sometimes that's where your view is and and yeah. that's where you know it gets a little tricky but the is, that's the two main things that we do so south your um your your let's just say worst side for mm -hmm. for heat um mm -hmm. so here where i live and it, it, this i live in the um, the low end of uh, Queensland, so the bottom end of Queensland for anybody listening. And this is something that's really interesting because I'm a, a, I'm a Kiwi, so I'm from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And here we would blank off a Western wall in a heartbeat. We'd just blank yeah. it off because we get such intense heat in the late afternoons and the setting sun that everything's heated up already. And then we've got this intense Western sun that will hit the house. And so... It's often a wall that is services wall. You know, we might have laundries yeah. and bathrooms and things like that on it that if they've got good insulation, but if they're with that natural heating that's happening, that that's where it's getting used up. And yet if I move to Tasmania or if I move to, say, Auckland in New Zealand, I would open my house to the west to try and grab that heat. Um, right because I want that, I need that last piece uh, to actually soak into my home um, because it's going to, that's what's going to keep it warm in the last piece of the day. It's going to hold that last bit of light. And, yeah, and, you know, like at each climatic place has its different variations on how it de definitely needs it. I actually wore my uh, Palm Springs Modern T-shirt this morning. <laughs> Because I knew I was talking to you from the desert. Um, that's why it's bright orange. Uh, uh -huh. I love desert architecture. I love desert uh, design. And also, like, I'm a fan of, obviously, Palm Springs because of the history and stuff like that. And what the, the, the architecture does, like you were saying, where you use your overhangs, how they're used, and then also using mechanical shading whether it's externally or internally, to enhance that, you know, so we can keep huge pieces of glass. Uh, but we mm -hmm. we do the same. We we open to the northeast normally here. So the east is our morning light, and uh, then we will keep it open to the north for the main part of the day and then block the west, like just try and blanket off the west. And yet we do houses, yeah. you know, we design, I've designed plenty of houses that look west. Because they've got amazing views. Well, I, yeah, I was just going to say, we do the same thing, but we have amazing sunsets here. Oh, yeah, so, desert. You yeah. know, 
the West, uh, it's a tricky balance between not getting too much afternoon sun, but still being able to enjoy an amazing sunset. It is, so. isn't it? It's it's like, yeah, it, it's such a tricky balance. And we've got the same, like I designed a house a few years ago for some people and they were going to block the West completely. And I said, yeah, I've got other clients who live not close, but same aspect. And I said, you've got to have a look at these photos. And I showed them the Western sunset photos because we get great Western sunsets as well, mainly at certain times of the year. Sometimes they're not like anywhere near as dramatic, but then there's other times when they're really beautiful. And they were like, oh, hell, we do have to. So we put like a long, well, when I say long, a covered porch off from mm -hmm. their kitchen just to view those sunsets from. <clears throat> Um, yeah. because the rest of it's really northeast facing and then yeah. but we've got this piece but well well covered like well covered well deep very deep in and it right. frames a long long view over more mountains or well there's no mountains in australia but big hills um yeah you know out to the yeah i find that that sighting of a home you know there's the the natural sighting that you would give it for the environment mm -hmm. And then there's sighting that is saying, well, here's the, I, I like to say they're the heroes or the money shots. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got a view of, and yes, I know it's, it might be south or it might be, you know, west or whatever. That's that's actually the sighting for the human to take in the nature. But architecturally, you'd say, no, 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 no. Architecturally, we should be sighting it the other way because that would give it the best performance and then the the, the journey is is working out the best performance to take in those natural things as well and yeah and making exactly it, yeah making it adapt to the environment you're you're putting it in right and then you know from my standpoint working on the interiors i take it that next step further with okay now what else can we do to help alleviate the heat from those western exposure windows during those couple of hours or you know whatever mm. so do you usually work with the same group of architects and designers is that is that how it works for you or do you know do people you f phone you and go Tanya, I I want you to do this and you work with this person and here's our floor plan already done. So you're late to the party and you go, no, go away. Or you go, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hate when they bring me in late to the party. Absolutely yeah. hate that. Um, I work with quite a few different architects and builders. Um, but, you know, kind of a core group of people over and over again. And ideally, they'll bring me into the project early on while they're still in their concept design phase. And that way we can, you know, give our input into layouts and spaces, uh -huh. uh, you know, <clears throat> function, because the architects will give you the basics, but there's frequently little tweaks and modifications that they're missing um and you know we're i'm thinking of it from a furniture standpoint and mm. furniture sizing and function C circulation and yeah exactly flow. yeah exactly yeah. and so ideally if i come in before they've got the floor plan like done 
we can make those little changes easily. You know, yeah. it's moving yeah. a few lines. <laughs> yeah. It's not resubmitting for permits. It's not moving a wall once we've already started construction. Mm. You know, obviously, if we're that late to the party, then we just kind of have to deal with what we've got. <laughs> you, yeah, you're trying to deal in all, all cases, you're trying to deal with what you've got. It's yeah. a, it's an interesting thing. A lot of times people will ask me, you know, so where does um, the built structure of the design of the built structures finish and interior design start? And a lot of people think mm. it's a few throw cushions and, uh, you know, a rug right. or whatever, you know, like um, for the people that are listening on the podcast, take us through, you know, what you call interior design versus um, what I would call interior decoration or styling. Right. Take me through that because this is a blurred line that people don't actually realize why they should have you in so early. Like what? what's the purpose of having you in there when the architect's starting to draw their design? Like what? Yeah. Tell us about that. 100% you're right. So there is interior design and that's what I do. And that's where I'm collaborating with the architect and with the builder and the client early on in the process. And that's where we're looking at things like window sizes and window placements and ceiling details and uh, Art traffic collections. circulation. <laughs> Art collections, exactly. Make sure we have enough walls. All of those things so we're doing um, space planning <clears throat> and dealing with the actual walls in the the building itself versus decorating where that is also part of what I do, but it's a separate thing. And it's like later in the process and that's your throw pillows and your furniture and your rugs and your paint colors. So... <clears throat> Yeah, a lot of people think that it's it's one and the same. And to a degree it is because I do both. But design starts way earlier in the process and it deals with space yeah. where decorating is what it looks like. Yeah, and decorating. Yeah. Uh, I always think of it as, as an analogy of it is, is it's like getting up and getting dressed. And so a woman, we'll use a, a woman as the analogy because it might be slightly easier, but not for the sake of being sexist. Um, a woman will get up and she'll get dressed and she'll layer what she's putting on, you know, from underwear to clothes to to jewellery and to, you know, hair ties, whatever it is. Um, and men do the same. They just don't probably, and as a general rule, they don't, probably make as many very deliberate conscious decisions about it um, women will tend to to layer these things together and maybe that's just our society um i worked as a fashion designer for years and years and years and so i certainly see it from from right from say a sports point of view uh where men will layer things very deliberately uh because it's around sports performance and things like that but women will make actually usually an effort and they'll do their makeup as well. If they if they wear makeup, they'll do their makeup. And this is something that men don't usually partake in very much at all. They might put a bit of moisturizer on or sunscreen or something like that. But women will actually go that next step. And I always think of that's like throw cushions. That mm -hmm. that that shit comes off before you go to bed, you know? Um it's mm -hmm. like <laughs> 
<laughs> so I always think of it like that and I go, that's that's like the the final touches to decoration. Um, the big moves are already made in the clothing and the way it's the shape of it, the presentation of it. And then there's these final little pieces. And that might be, you know, a, a, a bang, definitely makeup, but a bangle or whatever or whatever. They're the little bits that people take off at the end of the day. Yeah. <clears throat> men, you know, men tend to go, oh, well, they'll use a watch as that. They don't tend right. to often have a lot more than that. Maybe a necklace, maybe a watch, you know, those kind of things that they will take yeah. on and off. Um, but it's an interesting way of looking at the analogy of it. And then when you look at the home and you think, okay, so if this house was a person, then what would it require? You know, it's going to have all the parts, just like a house has all the parts. But how they uh, interact and what time of the day they use that and how that works is a whole nother story. You know, I look at houses and I go, so some people, for instance, are amazing cooks and they A, want to cook for everybody else and entertain for them. And B, they want to, that, that part of their soul is to give and they give food. Food is their giving, mm -hmm. you know, it's their, it's a way of being, um, expressing themselves creatively, as well as to give to others. And so when you look at that, you go, okay, so the hierarchy of importance over where a kitchen might be positioned so that there's their room to gather around it, or it might be an outdoor kitchen, like you were saying before, there's the room to, to bring people to it, uh, how do you go with that when you you're digging in on the client so you're doing your digging and the architect or the designer the building designer is doing their digging and how do you find that synergy that brings those two pieces together so that you don't end up just arguing over um when i say arguing, i don't mean that just don't end up at an impasse over this or that what's right. your process well uh, yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, <laughs> we start our process with a really in-depth questionnaire and um, an interview process, talking with the clients about how they live, what they like to do. Do they cook these big, elaborate, fancy meals or do they order takeout <laughs> or make reservations? Yeah, um, or, or, or bring got, it in, know, Uber Eats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've got those two extremes. Um, and what we've been starting to do recently is to work with the architect in collaborating on those questionnaires so that we're working from the same set of information. Mm. And, you know, if we can be there early on in the process and have these conversations and these design shirts with the architect where we can talk through where does it make sense for the kitchen to be? Um, from the standpoint of how these people live their lives. And, you know, that comes back to that wellness and well-being too. You know, it's it's how do you live your life? Where, What kind of a kitchen do you want? Do you want it to be the center of the home or do you actually want it to be more removed? Um, and then the other- Is it for you, is it for you or is it for caterers? Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. Well, and do you want a butler's pantry that the caterers come in and a set real up? Butlers. And how extensive does that need to be? 
Yeah, a real <laughs> butler's pantry, like one where the butler, butler yeah, the one where you've got a butler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. I even worked on one home where they put the, there wasn't a sink in the main kitchen. The cleanup was all oh. in the second, more butler pantry kitchen. scullery, I yeah. guess, mm. <laughs> to use a really old world. Mm word which is um, what it would be it was it was like where yeah. yeah it's like back of house in a restaurant yeah 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 the range was in the main kitchen because that's more interesting i guess and not messy but you know the sink that's usually just a, a bunch of dirty dishes and who wants to look at that Do you know so they put that in a, in a whole nother space it's fascinating isn't it i've i've got a house that's under construction at the moment and um, this client I'll refer to it as her because she is the driver and she does have a partner and he has some say and he has plenty of say in it. However, he, in saying that, he is not the driver. She is the driver and it's on acreage and all the rest. I meet them and get chatting with her and she says she's got this very, very definite idea that came out really quickly about having like a massive pantry. And I'm like, right. I said, I said, his name's Stephen. I said, so Stephen, could you run and get me some groceries, please? Like this. And he looked at me and I said, well, I figured you must be the butler if she wants this big pantry. Anyway, we had a good laugh about that. And uh, she said, no, no, I want this pantry big enough to dine in. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah. She said, I want to have a dining table in my pantry. And she said, so this is on acreage. So it's beautiful farmland around us. I don't want any doors and windows. I want to do some doors, but I don't want anything to the outside on my pantry. My pantry is centralized in my home. So it's got a cupola roof on it. So it gets all the light and air in through the top. And it's got two doors, one on either side. So it's a square. Mm. Not quite, but call it a square. It's got a door on either side so you can come in and rotate just around it. And I'm drawing this thing and I'm going, she's nuts. She's got to be nuts. Like I'm just going, A, it's going to have a big cost. And B, she's got another kitchen outside of it kind of thing. Well, that pantry actually has cooking in it. It also has um, washing up and stuff in it. It also has refrigeration mm -hmm. in it, of course. And the walls, it's not finished yet. So it's still in construction. But the walls will be like an Italian uh, deli where they'll be lined. She makes preserves. She mm. wants to be able to store her preserves and all the rest. I'm like, so who's going to come in here and eat? And she said, only the invited. Mm. And I'm okay. like, whoa. And she's like, yeah, well, let's see if you're going to be invited after we've been through the design <laughs> process with you. <laughs> um, but they're only the invited because of the fact that she said, anybody can come to the house that's friends, family, you know, whatever. She said, but the people I really want to party with, we're going to be in the pantry. <laughs> it's, and I'm like, it's like a snug in an English pub. You know, you mm, go, mm -hmm, if yeah. you've ever been behind the main bar, there's often in an old English pub, a snug and it's got a fireplace. It's usually about 10,000 degrees in there. And mm. there's, you know, no more space than for maybe six to eight people. And getting in the snug or, or being yeah, having the snug available to you in a pub is like a really cool thing. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, I know when I lived in England, we would often seek out pubs where we could go to the snug and sneak into the snug and just sit in there and have a, have a drink. Um, But that's her pantry space. And then you'd go back to, I go crazy budget wise, but ideal in her supporting what she wants from life and those people that are really special to her around her to enjoy them hanging out partying with no distractions they're not off watching the horses they're not doing any of those things they can do all that out there but when they come in there that that's where they are so yeah interesting well it's always fascinating I, i i go we're not building it for resale we're building it it's a it's a long long term house. She won't be selling it to anybody. She'll die there, you know. Mm-hmm. The, she'll get fed to the pigs or something. I'm sure. You know, <laughs> Stephen will chop her up and put her in the freezer. And... <laughs> no, it's just fascinating. I, I find that sort of thing fascinating. And then then doing that for somebody, and in this case, I'm not working with an interior designer, but I am working with a kitchen designer. And her mm-hmm. to get her head around it was just brilliant. You know, like that was a journey of joy for both me for entertainment and her going, she really wants this. And I'm like, yeah, right. she really wants this, really wants this. <laughs> I said to her, you really want to know what she wants? Turn up with a six pack of beer and sit on the porch and don't even don't even go anywhere entire, you know, into her own home that's currently there. Just sit on the porch and chew the fat, drink a beer and find out in depth who she is. And yeah. you you will really un, un you know, you'll peel back the onion to find an absolute gem of a of a person. Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting how well we get to know our clients and the funny, crazy things that they want for whatever reason. <laughs> I that's often... what we do. We're personalizing. We're customizing. That's it. It's not a it's not a um what do you call it like a project home it's a custom home and yeah. it it is to take their personalities and the i'm going to say the quirks of their personality we've all got quirks of our personality what it is is to bring that out in a way that it's not um made fun of and or or but it's it's nurtured and revered and makes it beautiful and builds depth to their life i think that's the that's the journey of it that makes it so special. Yeah, exactly. We're helping them to come up with something that makes sense, you know, like, okay, you want this thing that's a little out there, but how can we design it in a way that it works for you? It creates the effect that you're looking for, but it still makes sense yes. you know, from a function standpoint and from an aesthetic standpoint. and all of those other aspects i think that's a really really beautiful way of putting it because often you'll go into houses that have been poorly renovated and it doesn't make sense but the Mm idea is okay but it doesn't make sense it gets lost in translation and the ability to make it make sense and make it i want to say normalize it it's not normalize it it's it's yeah, make it make sense. It's like, how does it? So then it flows and it flows yeah. from there. Yeah. Yeah, mm. very true. You can see where they were trying to go sometimes. Yeah, that's what I mean. You can see, yeah, you can see where it just lacked that that next point of actually being drawn out. So yeah. tell me this, um, with 
a lot of the homes you do, you were telling me earlier, like a, a lot of vacation homes. Your clients yeah. come from mm -hmm. all over. Scottsdale, of course, being a mad golf scene, um, probably one of the maddest in the world, like as a place. Probably. Yeah. Um, incredible for that. So you do a lot of homes that are in Scottsdale and will be golf course homes because mm -hmm. lots of people play golf. Um, tell me a bit about that. And then also tell me a bit about Jackson Hole because I know that's your history as well. And the Grand Tetons, and it's a place very close to my heart, uh, that top end of America in the mountains, and the Tetons in particular are very, very special. Tell me a bit about that as a as a contrast. You know, you've gone from being in the Tetons with nature, bears, you know, it, it, wolves, everything, to mm -hmm. being in Arizona where you've got, you know, a, I was going to say not. It's, it's nowhere near the same. They're polar opposite as climate. Um, tell me a bit about that, how it influences it. And then that you've got these clients that come from everywhere and what kind of stories that makes. Yeah, it's kind of funny. People think that I moved to Arizona to get out of the snow. And that's <laughs> not at all why I moved. Um, it is a polar opposite as far as climate goes. But... Jackson Hole, where I grew up, and Scottsdale are both resort towns and vacation oh. towns. And so in that regard, they're very much the same. You know, we have our winter tourist season. Jackson has its summer tourist season. And, you know, the downtowns with their touristy shops and their art galleries, they're very, very similar. It's just on an opposite season. So it's interesting, the parallels as well as the contrasts between the two places. But yeah, so most of my clients, this is a second home or a vacation home, a third, fourth home, some of them. And they're coming from the Midwest or California. A lot of people come in here and um, enjoying the winter months here in Scottsdale in their vacation home. Um, and then a few of those clients have also done another home in the mountains um so they've got a place that they can get away to in the summer or for a, a ski vacation which is fantastic i'm a skier i grew up as a skier obviously growing up in jackson hole i was looking I'm at not. your ski photos over the last <laughs> month yes rub it in <laughs> yeah yeah i did get a little skiing in over christmas which was awesome um but so, yeah, the clients are coming from all over. And because it's a vacation home, it's an, a little bit of a different approach sometimes. You mm -hmm. know, they'll be a little more free. They'll take few, a little more risk. They'll do something a little more creative because they're not living in it, you know. As, as such, yeah, yeah. Like it's not their main residence. Yeah. So it, 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 yeah. it's a fascinating thing so to some degree they're going into a second persona of who they are when they're on holiday so you never right. i shouldn't say you never how many times do you have to make an office in the vacation home well actually we pretty much always have a home office because even if they're here on vacation they're yep. still trying to conduct business um so the pandemic just 
of course, really put a a huge focus on the home office. And yeah, it shifted it to the home office primarily. And a lot of people whose primary homes were elsewhere ended up spending more time here Mm -hmm. because of the politics a little bit around the pandemic and the shutdowns and things like that. Arizona didn't ever really shut down to a great degree like other places did. Um, And because we have such an outdoor living kind of environment, you know, it it was less scary for people to be here. And so people spent a lot more time here than they maybe normally would have. The home offices were modified. I did a lot of little tweaks to home offices. Mm -hmm. Um, One client, I had done their house. And as it was built, his home office just had a double wide opening, no doors. When he was really trying to work, he's like, I need doors. I need to be able to get quiet and no distractions. And I want to close the door. (laughs) I need separation. So funny little tweaks like that. I I see. I saw that happen a lot, like uh, the focus on suddenly the home office. And that has had an enormous shift in the way our population works globally. Um, certainly in the first world, with third world, I'm sure it hasn't had any shift at all in the sense of how they operate. However, in our first world, it's made an enormous shift to this uh, being able to work from home. And it's also accelerated uh, the office fit out. So, and from the commercial sense, mm-hmm. it's meant that you've got to create an office these days that people want to come to that delivers some values that they could get at home, not necessarily the same values, but delivers values of comfort and surrounding that would be more akin to a residential space. And it's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an amazing blurring of lines uh, mm-hmm. and to keep people to come back to their office. And I saw the rise of biophilic design, for instance, huge through this period, and now that's moving back into the office space. That is the, you know, the commercial space. Um, people are going, well, hold on a second. We did it at home where we were climatically locked in to take, say, a, a place like Melbourne in Australia. It had the biggest number of lockdown days than any other place in the world. And so take what they did to try and survive. I don't say survive, but what they did to thrive in their apartments, homes, things like that, where they bought in planting, they did these things so they got their nature connection with nature. And now they're going, well, I expect that in my in my office as well. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a big boom in the rise of amount of um, plant hire companies and stuff like that that are servicing mm-hmm. offices for this reason. Yeah. So you see these shifts and and I don't think we'll ever go back to not in our lifetimes, it won't ever go back to the sort of siloed office environment that it used to be. That flexible right. flexible working and um, flexible space is, yeah, it's just part of the future. My team, some of them work from home sometime, some of them work from home in the studio other times, you know. It's, it's highly more flexible than it ever was before. Yeah, yeah. We all learned that you can work more remotely. And for me, that's actually been a great benefit as well with people 
if their primary home is elsewhere and we're working on a project here. Now with things like Zoom, we can still have our meetings in a much more effective way mm-hmm. than just a phone call or somebody having to fly or trying to send things back and forth. We still do a lot of that. You of know, course. We're, yeah. we're still meeting. They're still coming out here. We're still sending samples. But there's so many things that we can do on video call like this. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, other than the touch and the feel pieces of things mm-hmm. and actuals, which mm, most clients probably don't get into too much in actuals, oh, well, it's actually this paint swatch. This is the color white. I know there's 500 yeah. of them, but this is the color white we're using. Because even if they are, say, in the Midwest and and you send them a piece of a paint sample from Arizona, the light change will affect the color alone, just the difference in desert light versus wherever they might be. And that yeah. that alone, people don't, uh, you can't take it into another environment and expect it to work the same. I find that right. we, we've, we do projects in different places and having a handle on what the light is, is really interesting. I often will go if we're specifying any of the interior colors and stuff like that, or even exterior, I often go, okay, get a paint chart from there. So like I keep mm-hmm. paint charts from New Zealand because we do some work in New Zealand. I keep paint charts from New Zealand and I'll match them against paint charts in Australia and look at what the difference is. And if we're doing a house in Victoria versus doing a house, say, in the wit sundays um they're different light there's a different yeah. color of there's a different hue of light for a bigger period of the year and then what should that be how should that play uh again i go is that just decoration or is that interior design as well come back to come round onto that <laughs> question again you know right because there's a seamlessness to it that makes it all work I've, yeah. uh, I think the the point of, like you said, you know, you start working very early with the client, I think is probably one of the biggest things, having that team together so that it rolls out and simultaneously um, when you're drawing a new house, I think that having the input of what furniture will be having to hold, how do they mm-hmm. live? What will they, how many people would be in this room at a time? What would be the maximum? What would be the minimum? How many times would it be at the maximum? You know, is it one wedding or is it one function a week? You know, at what times does this room operate in a certain way? And even what time of the day does it operate in this way? Um, These kind of questions unearth an amazing amount of uh, structure that the house requires because otherwise rooms get too big as well this th- right. I, do you find this there's a tendency to overbuild it's a very australian and american thing yeah yeah our our homes can get really large i mean there's been some crazy somebody was building a hundred thousand square foot house and you know it was one of those deals where it started out pretty big and then they said well let's add you know a alley let's add a basketball court that's the only way you can get that big is you start adding those kinds of odd spaces and then it got to a point where it was like well geez we're so close let's just make it a hundred thousand just so we can say that it's a hundred thousand square feet 
you know, I mean, <laughs> just do it for the sake of it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are people who have more money than sense. Yeah. <laughs> and this house I, looks like a hotel. It's up on the side of a mountain. And it when you look at it, you're like, is that a hotel? Up yes. There? Is that a resort? Honey, is house. that where we're staying as you drive past? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got a. No, I've, got a project on where the um owner it's on a farm i do a lot of stuff on rural properties and it's on a farm and he said to me he said i need a wood shop and so he's a businessman Uh, you know Mm -hmm. he's got he owns companies and he goes but i need a wood shop and i said oh okay cool what kind of you know what are you thinking here and he goes well it needs to be big and i'm like okay and I said, what are we talking? You know, is it going to be, I'm going to talk in meters. Is it going to be five by five? Um, which is, uh, I can't even do that conversion in my head. Oh, about 15 by 15 ish. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Maybe 20 by 20. Yeah. Not some, something yeah. like that. And it's no, it's eight by 10. That's yeah. <laughs> and I'm going, that's a small house for somebody. And he's yeah. like, yeah, but I've got this equipment and I really love to just one of his joys is running wood and doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and I, I, I think as we build the house, if we get this woodshed built, my my work shed, then the guys can run all these specialty timbers and stuff that I've collected and we'll mm-hmm. use those in the house as well and da, 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 da. And I'm going, yeah, okay. And I'm going, this is like, a, it's a simple structure, obviously, but it's a big chunk. And you mm-hmm. add that on when you add it on to the square meterage or square foot of a total design, you go, oh, just add another 80. And it won't be just 80 because it will have a bathroom. Um, you know, I say that. I haven't actually drawn the bathroom in it yet. Um, but <laughs> it certainly note needs. To self. Yeah, note to <laughs> self. It certainly needs somewhere to be able to wash things up and clean things up. Um, and if you were going to send them from the woodshed to to somewhere else to go to the bathroom. Let's I'll work out how far that journey is likely to be before I go sticking a, <laughs> a toilet in there. Because you know you put a toilet right. in, and then they go, "Can I have a shower?" What's well, home really yeah. dusty? Next thing you've got a full blown bathroom in there. What you yeah. want a spa bath and an ice bath, or what do you want in there? You know, like it's like at what point do we stop? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah. We, we end. Up- we do that sometimes too. The houses will get so big that it's like, well, we're going to need a bathroom somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. We've got circulation issues. You're going to be walking yeah, 40 meters to the bathroom every time you want to go to the bathroom. Let's get this sorted. Right. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. This thing is most of the houses that you design, are they, or the houses that you work in, are they two storied or single storied? Um, I would say typically they're just one story, but mm-hmm. because we have a lot of mountain lots, sometimes they will, you know, I'll kind of split. follow. Yeah. 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 They'll be split and they'll follow the, um, the line of the mountain. So mm. you might have sections of it that there's a little bit more of a two story and, and obviously stairs, but yeah, that comes back into a lot of the people that I work with are retirees or soon to be retirees. And so then we have to think about, you know, do you want all these stairs in your house long-term as you get older? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, and again, how can we adjust that? Yeah. 
exactly like you know we we have the same thing with um it, three stories are you going to put a lift or aren't you going to put a lift two stories mm-hmm. is stairs <clears throat> um but where do you arrive do you arrive uh, do you drive in on the level that you live on or, mm-hmm. and then downstairs might be you know or upstairs might be um bedrooms but not yours <laughs> you know it might be mm-hmm. additional um you know how's the house laid out to get the most functionality out of it is really critical to yeah. how long you're going to be in the house and what your life looks like. We designed our home uh, a few years back and we were really struggling to not do it as a split. And anyway, in the initial designs I had, I think it was three stairs and I did a guest's suite on the same level as the garage, which meant that anybody more elderly could come and be on that guest suite and still connect with the main part of like the kitchen and stuff, but couldn't connect mm-hmm. with a whole lot of the other pieces of the houses without three stairs. And I remember saying to the owner, and the owner's like an amazing person, <clears throat> or the owners, but him in particular is a adventurer. You know, he fancies himself as a bit of a Richard Branson type in the sense of taking mm-hmm. wild adventures, ones that you could not come back from. And you know, he, he's managed to hurt himself a few himself a few times. And I I made this comment. I said, look, that's either going to be a ramp or I'm going to either ramp it to the other piece or it's going to be that. And he goes, why would we ramp it like this? And I said, yeah, crutches, wheelchair. And he's like, looks Mm -hmm. at me. And I said, man, you'll break yourself again sometime in the future. And at first he was a bit affronted with it. And he went, you know, you're right. He said, um, let's really work on whether we need to shift the house on the site uh, to get this on one level. He said, Mm -hmm. aging parents, you know, all these things. And yes, I will probably break myself in the future at some point, not permanently, but just enough that it would be a real pain in the ass if I couldn't get from this point to this point without it. And so we recited, actually recited. Yeah. Yeah. Just shift. Well, and that's one of those things, too, that kind of comes into play with the distinction between interior design and decorating. <clears throat> things like just putting blocking inside the wall for future use of grab bars inside showers. You know, those are the kinds of things that a decorator is not going to talk about or do. But as a designer and working early on in the process, okay, we don't need grab bars right now. But, you know, in the future, if you need them, you need blocking there behind the wall. Yeah. So it's it's far deeper level of thought process and thinking ahead to the future and, you know, inside the walls, all of that kind of stuff. I love that. I love it. It's a great, great distinction. I think it's one that, you know, everybody listening should take this distinction, like thinking of the future, the house well, you know, sometimes you might be building it to sell it or whatever, but just short term or you see it as a five, 10 year project. Uh, mm-hmm. If you think of these things now, they save you tens and tens of thousands of dollars later if you should need them. And yeah. I, I, we do a lot of the same stuff. You know, people go, why does a custom home cost so much more than a project home what we call here a project home 
and you go, well, we block all those walls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we block the one right. beside the toilet. We block them. All those walls are blocked. Have a look at them. Yeah. They're all thicker. That means yeah. that, that things can be attached to them um, for that reason. And that the circulation spaces are larger. You know, we go, oh, well, we wouldn't make a hallway, say, um, one metre wide. We'd make it 1,200 wide. So it's yeah. actually accessible with wheelchair or accessible with somebody with crutches. And fabulous when you're carrying groceries in both hands. They're not right. rubbing up against the wall. Like, just go back to the simple stuff, you know. And yeah. as we're more active as humans, we are more likely to have needs that allow for more activity. You know, can you push a push a push bike, a mountain bike or something down through the hallway if you need to? Um, does it run into things? What happens? Can you navigate a corner? Beds, you know, like, can you get a king bed in the staircase, up the stairwell and into that <laughs> bloody bedroom? You know, yeah. we've all been there. You know, right. what do you mean it costs $5,000 for the crane to put the bed in the room? Yeah, well, <laughs> somebody didn't think of something, did they? You know, these right. kinds of things. And it's it's amazing when you look at this and you go how this isn't what I would call interior design is that spatial part of it. What's that spatial yeah. awareness and how that operates? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So get yourselves all a good interior designer when you're listening to this. And if you're an <laughs> architect, make sure you work with a really good interior designer um, so that you get this right, so that it, it works, because it makes the biggest impact on the humans at the very end of it. Yeah, in those little ways that you might not even realize <clears throat> until yeah. they come to play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got a question for you, which is going to be our last one, or it's going to be part of our last one. Your favorite place in your home? <clears throat> that is probably on my sofa in my living room. Um, that's where I do my morning meditations. That's where I'm hanging out with my kitties. It is on the east side of the house so it gets that amazing morning sun and not that oppressive afternoon heat <laughs> so it's just it's a comfortable bright space you know I've got two large windows in the living room so there's a lot of light in that space and it, it just feels calm and, and comforting and relaxing cool so I, you, you kind of answered me, but I want mm. one word, which is, sorry, when I say you kind of answered me, you answered me beautifully. I should correct that. <laughs> I want one word, which is an emotion that sums up that space for you. And you might have said it. <clears throat> um, I would say comfortable. Yeah, okay. comfortable. And And I think that's kind of a hallmark of what I strive for with my design, too, is rooms that are comfortable. They're Mm -hmm. beautiful and they might be magazine worthy, but they don't feel like a museum. They feel comfortable to live in. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, that there's that's where you get to have relax. 
mm-hmm. because you can have beautiful, but it may not feel comfortable, and therefore you don't get to relax. You know, there's a yeah, there's a, a there's a line there. Yeah, exactly. A lot of beautifully decorated rooms are beautiful to look at, but you feel like you have to sit like this, you know, yeah. and you can't touch anything and you can't put your feet up and, you know, heaven forbid kids are running around, you know, so that goes back to that livable aspect of our well-designed philosophy too, you know, what makes you feel comfortable and like you can really live in your home. Mm. Mm. I like that. And you've chosen a, a space that is actually a relatively public area. I think that, you know, often we'll do a, a hierarchy of needs and a hierarchy of budget when we're looking at spaces in a house. And the living room mm-hmm. is often underutilized, but oversized. It, it It's right. often, you know, like it's, uh, I think there's a an epidemic of people doing eating spaces, you know, like, we eat over here, we eat over here, we eat over here, we eat over here. It's like, how many meals are you getting a day? Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, like there's so much um, emphasis put around being able to sit and eat something. And often I think I see um, spaces that are the living room, that they're too big for conversation, so they don't pull people in enough. Right. And they get underutilized because they need a crowd to fill them. Mm-hmm. And so that, but they're kind of the grand room, you know, they're, they're the grand room. It's a, they're a big luxury. Uh, it's this really interesting paradox where how do you pull this in to make it work? I often say to people, if we go that big, you've got enough for two sets of furniture in this room. And they said, what do you mean? I go yeah. two sets. You've got two lots of conversation. There's two completely separate areas. Do we need to get there or do we yeah. pull it back? So your own living room, is it big or small? It's not that big. I was going to say, you know, I don't have a living room and a family room, which goes back to, uh-huh. you know, most of most of the large homes that we're working on have both. And like you said, the living room tends to not get used unless they're entertaining. Yeah. The family room is where they live. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't have those two separate distinct spaces. So mine, mine's it's a larger room, but it's not cavernous. It still feels cozy, Mm. but you're right. Some of the living rooms, we have two or even three seating groupings just to fill up the space. And, you know, if, if people entertain and they have, you know, business entertaining needs, then okay, that makes sense. But otherwise it's a big space that looks pretty and and hardly ever gets used. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? And then I come back to when you do that, you go, um, how do you maintain intimacy in a large space uh, so that there's connection, close connection, and yet, like you say, mm-hmm. there's often things where people don't actually want that close connection, but they use the space as a big entertaining space. And again, this is understanding the client and the needs of the house. And when people right. go and buy a house, knowing even, you know, just if they're buying off the shelf, um, knowing how they live is such a value to them to recognizing what that space really needs to be just to purchase. Mm-hmm. Not if they're house hunting, you know, 
not one of our right. clients that goes with you. You might, yeah, they might become an interior design client. Ultimately, though, they're, they're going to purchase something that somebody else has already built or whatever. But understanding their own needs to get to that and the emotions that each space brings uh, is the other thing. So I know, like, the minute you said meditation, I went, mm-hmm. oh, you know, ah, mm-hmm. oh, that that's like ah, oh, right, okay, because it takes either much greater meditation skills. It takes a lot to meditate, you know, sitting on stones, versus mm-hmm. sitting somewhere really comfortable and somewhere that you actually feel comfortable that you can just remove that first lot of noise, that first lot of self dialogue to drop through your levels. So it it made me it made me take a breath when you said it. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't have a bunch of kids running around or things like that. If I if I had family, I'd probably meditate somewhere else. Yes. But because I'm usually alone in the house when I do it, I can choose that eastern facing room, which, you know, Mm -hmm. I do it in the morning. And so that has that kind of connection there. And, And so it's a quiet space and it works for me. But. Again, so that's back to that personal need and lifestyle and who else is in the house and what else is going on. You know, um, if I had a big family, I would probably create a little meditation corner in my bedroom or something like that. Yeah. Somewhere else. Somewhere else you'd find Mm -hmm. another spot. Mm. Yeah. Tanya, awesome conversation. And for everybody listening, I hope you got lots out of it. Uh, Go, and we will post all these things, but go and have a look at Tanya's books. You'll learn lots from her. There's tons of resource. Have a look on her website, which, of course, we'll post as well. And there's tons of resource there for people to go and have a look at and understand the interior design journey. Of course, you can contact Tanya, and provided she can fit you in a schedule and it's a good match, I'm sure she'll work with you. One of the things that she's done is built a very successful business and it's a very giving business. There's lots of resource that you can delve into and learn from. Thank you so much for being on Talk Design. I've really, really enjoyed it. I've learned lots. I've got two pages of notes. And I hope everybody else has learned lots. Hunt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Adrian. It's fun chatting with you. Yeah, awesome. We will talk again soon. Sounds good. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? 
and see if they follow you, see if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.